SB Nation and Underdog Dynasty present the Underdog Podcast. Welcome to another edition of the Underdog Podcast on UnderdogDynasty.com, SB Nation's home for G5 football. Excited to talk about the week that was in week two of Conference USA. Some interesting wins for the league as well as a couple disappointing performances, but we will get to that. Uh, Joe Lonergan and Eric Henry here with you once again. A little early morning taping uh, compared to what we usually do, right, Eric? Yeah, Joe, I don't feel quite as bad about, you know, getting up this uh, this early in the morning. I know normally you are three hours behind over in Portland, but I know you are not necessarily in the East Coast, but you're in the Midwest, the heartland of American Indiana right now. So you're about an hour behind me and both of us are running off of caffeine. So we are up and ready to go to preview week three in Conference USA. Absolutely. And uh, we'll go ahead and pretend it's only coffee in my thermos this morning and not, uh, you know, <laughs> the official drink of of in Kentucky and, and bourbon and all that stuff. So it is what it is. But yeah, let's talk about some week two results from CUSA and starting with that Thursday night game from last week uh, when UAB took a trip to Miami to visit the Hurricanes. Uh, I think we both picked UAB to pull off the upset. Ultimately, that's not really what happened as uh, the Hurricanes strolled to a uh, 41 to 14 win over Bill Clark's squad. Um, and ultimately, it was really just kind of a lack of offensive production killing the Blazers here, at least from my perspective. Only 14 first downs compared to Miami's 25. Uh, an, an okay day for Spencer Brown with 16 carries and 74 yards and a touchdown. Uh, Eric, what else, in your opinion, kept the Blazers from getting it done in this one? Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head as far as just the offensive performance. And that's the thing. Both of us did pick UAB or at least felt confident about their ability to go into Miami and get a victory. However, one of the things that's been the Blazers M.O. really in the Bill Clark era is they do win a certain way. And that is with discipline play and defense. They aren't exactly going to outscore anybody. So if UAB was to give up 31 points, there was really no way in UAB's game plan that they'd be able to keep up. And you look at it right here, you know, you talk about a kind of a pedestrian day from Spencer Brown, Tyler Johnson, 15 of 23 for 150 and a pick. I don't know if it felt this way to you, Joe. It felt a little bit like, and I'm not saying that the coaches were, you know, playing against Tyler Johnson, but it felt to me as if you were going to have to, you know, maybe open up the playbook a little bit and take some chances down the field, especially when you got guys like, you know, uh, Myron Mitchell and, and and Austin Watkins and take some chances downfield because playing that typical type of UAB style of game wasn't going to get the job done if Miami was clicking on all cylinders. And the fact of the matter was this, the rushing attack from Miami, you know, I'm talking about Cameron Harris, 17 for 134 and two TDs. Uh, if Miami's going to be able to run the ball like that, then, you know, the Canes might be back. Granted, it's one week, so I don't want to, you know, stoke the flames of the uh, South Florida fan base down here. But if they're going to be able to run the ball like that, they're going to be a successful team. And I think that was the major thing for UAB um, is that we knew they were going to have to play their A-plus game, but they really were going to have to open up the playbook and take some chances and uh, weren't able to really get that going. Yeah, I'd say that's an accurate synopsis with uh, how UAB played. They they definitely seemed like they were, I don't know, not afraid, but they I feel like they needed to take more chances downfield, especially with the type of hole that they found themselves in early, and they just really didn't do that for whatever reason. So um, opportunity for the upset has come and gone, but obviously still plenty of chances for the Blazers to uh, get back on top of the conference at some point this year. Um, with that, then let's take a, a short, <laughs> short-ish road trip up to uh, – 
uh, Louisville, Kentucky, where the uh, Western Kentucky Hilltoppers face the Cardinals in Cardinals Stadium to open up their season. Uh, the Cardinals ultimately victorious there, 35-21. to 21. In this one, though, Western Kentucky's defense just really could not get off the field on third down, and their offense couldn't stay on the field on third down. Uh, tops were just 4 of 12 on converting third downs on offense. Louisville was 9 of 16 in that department. And really, had it not been for a few heads-up plays on the part of Western Special Teams Unit, recovering a fumble on an early punt attempt by Louisville and then blocking one later in the night, margin here could have been a lot bigger. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's interesting, Joe, and I'm glad you mentioned the third down conversion rate. because I think that's going to be the big thing for Western Kentucky this year. I mean, obviously, you can say that about any football team. But in specificity for the tops, we know that the big change for them last year that resulted in the success was the play of quarterback Ty Story. You know, he took over Stephen Duncan in the third week of the season. My memory serves me correct. And one of the things that Story was able to do is, and I know the the phrase game manager kind of gets a dirty rep or, you know, it sounds like a bad label, but there's nothing wrong with that. You know, if you can do the things that your team asks you to do, convert on third down and protect the football, especially with a defense like Western Kentucky, uh, that Western Kentucky has, you're going to give them a chance to, you know, being a lot of ball games. And that was a thing for the debuting Tyrell Pigroom at quarterback that they weren't necessarily able to do. And I want to ask you this, Joe, as our resident Western Kentucky guy, um, this is kind of the feel I get in terms of the tops. And I know it's early. It's one game, Louisville, you know, really good football team. But Tyrell Pigroom, uh, I believe he had 17 carries for 68 yards. I'm just curious if you feel that there is – and obviously, Tyrell Pigrome and Ty Story, apples and oranges. You know, Pigrome's going to use his legs. Ty Story isn't or wasn't. Uh, do you feel that there is the same formula for success, whether it's instead of maybe it's Ty Story and that, you know, third and six converting, you know, making the the um, uh, converting a third and six with a seven yard pass. Instead of that, do you think there's room for Western to kind of be that? offense that it revolves around the rushing attack of Gage Walker and Tyrell Pigrome and plays, you know, run, run, keep away good defense? Uh, or does that seem like it might not be able to equate for the same uh, level of success that the tops had last year under Ty Story? It's an excellent question. Right now, it's definitely critical for them to be relying on the rushing attack a little bit more with Gage Walker and Tyrell Pigram, like you said, especially when you look at the fact that they've lost some key pieces of last year's receiving core, um, Lucky Jackson, namely. But, um, you know, I think part of the reason why Western Kentucky's tight ends have really been able to shine the last four or five years is exactly what you said. And in those third and shorts, they've been able to dump off to those guys and, uh, you know, use that to their advantage. Um, but in, in this instance, this year, I do think that, you know, the fact that they have a quarterback in Tyrell Pigram who, you know, has the athletic ability to make plays with his legs. I think that's going to add an extra dimension to their offense. They're just going to have to make the appropriate adjustments to deal with that. And, you know, realize that obviously, like you've said a couple of times now, Ty Story and, uh, and, and Tyrell Pigram, two completely different quarterbacks. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I'm in agreement with you. And once again, it's one game. You don't want to, you know, panic or anything like that. I guess the only thing is coming off of Ty's story. Uh, I would have liked to have seen a little bit better than 10 of 23 passing, but you know, it's one game in Louisville is, is a really solid football team. So uh, won't panic too much, but we'll see how the tops fare as they move into CUSA play. 
Absolutely. So with that, then let's talk about uh, Texas beating UTEP by almost uh, 60 points here, uh, 59 to three, the final there. UTEP actually held the ball for longer in this one, but Texas outgained UTEP 689 to 233. And uh, this one was really just another exercise in futility for UTEP football, uh, unfortunately. Um, There's really not much I think you can take away from either team here because obviously Texas is going to face much better competition throughout the rest of this year. And uh, UTEP is kind of on the other end of that spectrum. So, uh, you know, I'm curious to hear what, what your thoughts are on this contest, Eric. So initially I was ready to come on here and just be negative, right? And... Quite frankly, there's you can go back and listen to any of our podcasts over the past two and a half years. We've been doing this podcast together. So uh, to, to hear me being negative about UTEP, here's the thing. I would have liked them to have been a little bit more competitive in that I just came on here last week and gave Dana Dimmel kudos and saying that if there's going to be any sort of rebuild, it's going to be with the youth movement. And, you know, they might have something in Hardison. Um Deion Hankins and the uh, wide receivers escaping my name right now. Unfortunately, I, I, um, Justin Garrett, the other kid, his, his name is escaping me. Right. Jacob Cowan uh, and, and those guys. But I will say this. There's no doubt Texas head and shoulders better than UTEP. I'd be wasting my breath and even you know going into a long dissertation about that. I'm focused on the next two weeks. Abilene Christian and Louisiana Monroe. Those are going to be the two games for me, Joe, that will say whether or not the talent that they have on this roster is at least formidable enough to compete against moderate G5 talent, moderate G5 teams. And I think, you know, for me, like I said, that's going to be the test. I don't even need them to, in my opinion, to really assess whether or not they're heading in the right direction to be able to hang with, I'm looking at the rest of the schedule here, a UAB or a Charlotte or a Southern Miss or a Louisiana Tech. You know, Dana Dimmel says it's a five-year plan. <laughs> Unfortunately, in the you know society we live in, um, or, or at least the, the college football landscape that we live in, very few coaches get five years. So, you know, um, I don't know about that. But in year three, I at least need them to be able to hang with Abilene Christian and Louisiana Monroe, if not beat those teams. If they can do that, then I'll say, okay, this is heading in the right direction. If they're getting run by Louisiana Monroe by 30 points, then it's time to sound the alarms. I think that's a fair assumption. So we'll be curious to see how Dana Dimmel really has his guys adjust to the situation that they're in right now and uh, hopefully pick up at least one other win throughout the course of this year as we get into conference play very soon here. Um, with that, then let's head back to North Carolina to see how uh, Charlotte faced against App State and the Mountaineers victorious in that game, 35 to 20. Not a bad day for Will Healy's squad. I was moderately impressed with how Chris Reynolds handled uh, some of the uh, things he was faced with in this game. But ultimately, I think App State was just the more opportunistic team. And that's kind of why we saw them uh, get the victory here. Yeah, Joe, I mean, you talk about Chris Reynolds, 11 to 30 with the two picks, but he did get banged up early. I believe it was the second drive. Uh, it looked like he banged his hand, uh, you know, had like a thumb or, or a, a wrist injury or something to that uh, that throwing hand. And you talk about conditions. I mean, it was a wet, sloppy day there in uh, Boone, North Carolina. Here's the big thing, Joe. And, and I, I should have asked you this ahead of time. I don't know if we happened to catch the um, last few drives from Charlotte. I, I'm not going to come on here and, you know, bash Will Healy or anything like that. I mean, for a friend of the podcast, thank you for coming on. 
but I, I was a little bit bewildered, I think is the right word. And I'm not going to, you know, Monday morning quarterback, or in this case, uh, Tuesday morning quarterback, you know, as far as the decision-making. However, there was a stretch, Joe, where um, Charlotte got the ball back and they were down 28-20. And they had two drives. And if my memory serves me correct, they had five plays for eight yards on the first drive. And then the second time, they recovered a fumble where they had the ball at the App State 20-yard line in the red zone. Four chances. And once again, Reynolds was hurt. So, you know, be that as it may, take that into account with this, you know, uh, synopsis here. But four chances from inside the the 20-yard line to, you know, tie the game up, potentially tie the game up down eight. And they went pass, run, QB run. And then on fourth and 10, uh, attempt a rollout. I believe it was a rollout. I, I know it was a pass play. And I just felt like that that sequence there left a lot to be desired. If I were a Niner fan, I know I said this to um, some of the Niner fans, and, and shout out to the, the fans there on Niner Nation, one of the, the Charlotte forums there who you know, talk about all things Charlotte sports. If I was a Niner fan, I would have a, a, a feel like there was a lot left to be desired in terms of the play calling down the stretch there. Because I feel like this game was winnable. You know, App State turned the ball over three times. And sure, part of that probably had to do with the conditions there. And, uh, you know, you look at the rushing attack, I mean, 306 yards for App State on the ground. Obviously, that's not going to get the job done for Charlotte. But all in all, I just felt like (laughs) um, I like to use this phrase, right? Appalachian State is not 15 points better than Charlotte, in my opinion, but they were on this day. And who knows if you go back and you, you run that game back and it's dry conditions and, you know, Reynolds doesn't get banged up. Maybe they're a little bit closer, but I just felt like that stretch down the fourth quarter, Joe, if I were a Charlotte fan, I would be like, man, we, we had our chances and, and, and we just, you know, if you run that back, I'm sure coach Healy would have done it differently, but it, it just felt like it was right there, especially, you know, four chances from the red zone and 20 yard line and, and you can't punch it in or at least get three uh, just a little bit disappointing. Yeah, I mean, I think you all have uh, valid cons- uh, points there about Charlotte's performance in this game, particularly with that one sequence. And, uh, you know, like we said, granted, it's early in the season, but, um, you know, I, it, it's interesting how different the second half was for Charlotte when you compare it to the first half, because like you mentioned, these two teams were neck and neck for a lot of this game, but uh, App State just able to capitalize on the mistakes and, and make the most of their day uh, at home in Boone there. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Um, And then we'll wrap up last week's slate with UTSA and Texas State. Uh, The Roadrunners getting a huge win for that program, 51-48 over the in-state, not rival, but (laughs) the fellow in-state Texas football team there. Uh, 29 carries for Sincere McCormick in this one with uh, 197 yards and a touchdown. Uh, So certainly a strong performance for him. But I think the the performance that we really need to talk about is uh, quarterback Frank Harris. Big rushing day for him as well. Well, three touchdowns on the ground and then threw one to Josh Cephas as well. Um, just 
incredible day for him. So I think they just need to, <laughs> if they can get that out of him on a consistent basis and they could, uh, you know, surprise a lot of folks here. Joe, you, you and I have speculated on this podcast for two years, two and a half years about what UTSA could be if Frank Harris was healthy. Right. And I think I may have even tweeted this out during the game. You know, the uh, Frank Harris is back. The question is for how long? He is such a dynamic athlete back there. And I want to, you know, run this by you because anyone who's followed Conference USA football or is a UTSA football fan knows for a 51-point outburst from them. I just want to run this off. In 2017, uh, under Frank Wilson, the Roadrunners averaged 23.5 points, good enough for 104th out of 130 teams. You fast forward to 2018, that number dips to 14.2. They were 129th out of 130 teams. And then you go last year in Frank Wilson's final season, 20.3 points, 117th out of 130 teams. I only mention that is to say that UTSA's offense was brutal to watch the past three years. So if you're a Roadrunner fan, to watch your team put up A, 51 points, and B, in the style of offense that they did it. I mean, it was exciting. It was wide open. Um, You have to be excited. And this didn't come over. No disrespect to Eastern Kentucky. It wasn't like Marshall's win a couple weeks ago over Eastern Kentucky. You know, Texas State looks to be a pretty good ball club. And most of the offense or most of the points came from the offense outside of the Rashad Wisdom 81-yard interception return. So I think, like you mentioned, Frank Harris, a dynamic athletic quarterback, can make things happen just for his sake. You know, really hope he can stay healthy and guide the roadrunners. But I am very optimistic. I know I got a, uh, had a couple people when I wrote my three things. Um, to learn about Conference USA piece, they didn't necessarily agree with my synopsis. But I think if UTSA can focus on San Antonio and just getting those guys and those athletes in there and, and kind of running that wide open offense that allows those guys to make plays, you know, look out for the Roadrunners. That's that's just my opinion. And and uh, I, I know we've come on here way too many times on this podcast and talk about, you know, 10 point performances from the uh, Frank Wilson era Roadrunners. So great to see that in Jeff Trailer's debut as Roadrunners head coach. Things certainly look to be on the up and up for UTSA football as we head into, uh, again, a strange season here, but great way to start the year if you're a Roadrunner fan. Uh, with that, then let's talk about a couple news and notes from the week that was in COSA. Uh, to start off with, if you are a Louisiana Tech fan, you've obviously been no stranger to uh, success in the last few years, but um, you know, I think it's it's safe to say, obviously, AD Tommy McClelland was a bit part of that, but uh, he has now been hired by Vanderbilt as a deputy athletic director. Uh, That story comes from ESPN. So, uh, you know, obviously not the only piece of Tech's success on the football field the last, you know, half a decade or so. But, uh, you know, I think people underestimate just how, you know, beneficial having a athletic director who who gets it, who's supportive of your program is. And uh, Tech's losing one for sure here. Vanny got a good one. No doubt about it. And uh, I I tried not to, you know, go (laughs) um, every week without referencing my UCF Knights or at least my alma mater in UCF. But it's the example I have here in terms of an AD. You want to talk about just an athletic program that has grown leaps and bounds due to uh, a change in athletic directors. When I was at UCF, the athletic director was Keith Tribble. And, you know, UCF always seemed to be during that era from 2010 to 2015, like they were always scratching the surface of what they could be as far as potential of a, of an athletic program. 
you insert Danny White, who came in in 2016, if my memory serves me correct, and you see what just uh, not only the football program, but, you know, basketball, they make a run in the NCAA tournament, you know, the uh, women's basketball teams improved, et cetera, et cetera. So just to bring it all the way back around, the importance of an athletic director who shares the vision of not only your football's head coach, but just um, maybe shares a vision that you're, especially at the G5 level, Joe, I'm sure you would agree with this, doesn't have a um, a quote-unquote small-time view of what the program could be. And by all means, I am not an athletic director. I have no desire to face those budgets and all the challenges that come with running an athletic program, especially at the G5 level. I'm sure there, uh, there may be an athletic director who, who will hear this and say, yeah, um, it's nice that you can speculate on what I can and can't do, but you haven't looked at my budget. I completely concede that point. But I think that especially at the group of five level, it takes someone who has a grand vision of running their program as if they are, you know, a Michigan and Ohio State, et cetera, and strives for success in that regard. And uh, Louisiana Tech certainly had one there. So um, wish him nothing but the best. And I think uh, all of at least Conference USA, if we're concerned, uh, would love to see all the athletic directors have the uh, type of success that Louisiana Tech had with Tommy McClellan. Absolutely. It will uh, be interesting to see how they're able to uh, replace McClellan and move forward from here. But, um, you know, like you said, wish him nothing but the best in Nashville as uh, he moves forward with his career. Um, And then one other kind of piece of news that (laughs) was more on the entertaining side um, following Charlotte's loss to App State. Um, we saw uh, Charlotte wide receiver Cameron Dollar post a screenshot from uh, backup Appalachian State tight end uh, Mike Adams uh, with his tight end position group holding the uh, Charlotte Club's lit sign that apparently Will Healy's squad left there last season when they played in Boone uh, the first time. Uh, but in the picture you see kind of Charlotte's or rather app state's tight ends holding up the middle finger, uh, you know, making their position group sign that they've become accustomed to, uh, you know, in kind of a mocking motion, the humor from this comes from camera dollars tweet, which uh, reads, and I quote, thankful for the opportunity to play this game came up short to a team that simply won the day despite the rain and a lack of fans. Good game app state hats off to the guys whose jerseys were wet from something other than the rain, (laughs) which obviously the implication there being most of the people you're going to see in this picture that Mike Evans posted didn't actually play. So uh, no, no sweat is a part of uh, the wetness there, but uh, you know, you know, I, I don't think there's really too much malice in, in what app state posted, but um, it, it does, it does strike me as funny that it's it's coming from, you know, one of the players who really didn't have an impact on this game. Yeah, I think that's the funny thing. I'm sure we all have a story. First off, really quick, in, in budget talk, um, Will Healy and Charlie got the budget for multiple club lit signs? I mean, they just leaving them all around Conference USA or the stadiums? I mean, I, I guess I should ask Coach about that when we, uh, we had him on, but uh, I digress. You know, we all know that guy who, you know, is the person who um, didn't play in the game, but is running around like they were, you know, the uh, the superstar. And uh, I shared a story with Joe. I'll share two stories here really quick. I shared one off air with Joe about uh, when I was at UCF, there was always that time where you could walk around campus and you'd see like the reserve four string, not reserve and backup, but like fifth string walk on and, and no disrespect to walk-ons uh, i was a former walk-on so no issue with that uh, uh walk on at uh, naia school but um the fifth string tight end wearing his saint petersburg bowl or beefo brady's bowl jersey into like class and it's like dude 
like is it that serious for recognition um but the other story that i will share joe is it, it reminds me of my senior year of high school there was a a, a kid who god bless him um didn't really get much playing time, never did during his uh, his three years on the team. And I remember it like it was yesterday. The uh, <laughs> I'm wondering if I, how deep I want to go into names here. Uh, the, uh, our star receiver on the team who ended up uh, playing college football at USF and went on to play in the NFL for a little while, had a couple of coffee with the Cleveland Browns. He wore the same size shoe, same size cleat as this kid. And um, one of the, 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 um, you know, the um, spikes on on his cleat had kind of gotten ripped off and whatnot, and, and it was giving him issues. So they turned to uh, this kid, whose name I will not mention, and they said, hey, hey, what size shoe do you wear? And he's like, I'm 10 and a half. He's like, hey, we need those. If there's no greater sign, Joe, that you are not going to play, it's when they take your cleats to give them to someone else. Uh <laughs> Yeah, for sure. <laughs> so that's, that's that's just what that reminded me of. Yeah, I'd say that's an apt comparison, uh, or an app comparison rather, uh, with <laughs> App State. Anyway, um, yeah, no, I think it's funny you, you see that definitely a few times, and like, not that these guys don't contribute to the success of their team overall, but you know, come on, <laughs> you know, you act like you've been there before, but. It, 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 the same all in good fun. I think we're all just kind of happy to have college sports back and have something to trash talk about at this point. Yeah, no doubt about it. Just happy to have college football back and, and happy to have trash talk back. You know, this is much more entertaining than what we could would have been doing this podcast on had there not been any college football. So right. This would have become a chess club podcast very quickly or something. <laughs> or a lot of King of the Hill, right? Yes, it's yeah. We just yeah. Welcome to the Underdog Podcast, where we uh, just review episodes of King of the Hill, <laughs> basically. Um, all right, let's dive into uh, a preview for Week Three coming up here. Uh, some interesting ones on tap uh, to start off with on Saturday, the nineteenth at noon Eastern. We have Western Kentucky hosting uh, Hugh Freeze and Liberty on ESPNU. Um, I'm picking the tops here. They're favored by fourteen uh, over in Vegas. I think this is going to be a really good litmus test of what Tyrell Pigram can really do at the G5 level. Uh, Liberty, obviously, a decent enough G5 team. Um, we haven't seen them play yet this year, but uh, that defense is is certainly solid. So um, all those things that we were talking about in the first part of the show, the adjustments that Western Kentucky needs to make in the offense with Gage Walker and all that, I think they should be able to make it here and, and you know get back on a similar type of run to what Tyson Helton had them doing last season. Yeah, I think this is going to be a good test for Western Kentucky and Western Kentucky fans to see what they have in terms of facing Liberty. Liberty is a program coached by Hugh Freeze, former Ole Miss head coach Hugh Freeze, who they're they're a solid team. They went eight and five last year. They've been a very, very good program uh, over the past few years. And uh, they're a team that had a, um, put up a lot of points last year, I believe averaged 32 points per game. If my memory serves me correct, almost had 2000 yard rushers. The player you're going to want to look for is running back Joshua Mack and uh, former uh, Auburn transfer Malik Willis, who was the quarterback there. But, yeah, all in all, I think that'll be the test. I mean, Western Kentucky at home, uh, everyone should be healthy, you know, provided COVID doesn't play a factor. Uh, this will be the test to see where the tops will be at in 2020. 
Absolutely. So we'll turn our sights then to the uh, other side of the Moonshine Throwdown rivalry and uh, talk about another rivalry of the Marshall Thundering Herd, and uh, that's against the App State Mountaineers. Uh, Marshall hosts the number 23 team in the nation at uh, 1.30 Eastern on CBS Sports Network on Saturday. Um, For those that remember, this is kind of a classic rivalry within the G5 ranks. Uh, App State favored by three and a half here. Um, you know, based on the execution that we saw out of Zach Thomas and that crew yes, uh, last week, rather, I'm expecting them to have some some similar results here. Uh, this is going to be a huge test for Grant Wells as he comes into his second game as QB1 for the herd. Um, I, I think he'll be able to perform admirably, but I think App State's the more complete football team right now. And, you know, as we saw Last week against Charlotte, they're very opportunistic and I, Marshall simply aren't playing perfect football right now. And at least from a G5 standpoint, you need to play perfect football in order to beat App State. I'm going to try not to rinse and repeat the same thing I just said, but it's really applicable here. For Marshall, this is going to be the test. It's not going to be Eastern Kentucky. And granted, Appalachian State is probably on the higher end. Uh, I mean, I, I no disrespect to Conference USA teams, but I think it's fair to say that App State, you know, is is on the upper echelon of Group of Five teams overall, and by their number twenty three ranking, a top twenty five team in the nation. So, um, I would like to see, in my opinion, the thing I'm looking for is just see how Grant Wells performs. And again, you don't want to go too high on him in terms of the Heisman talk against Eastern Kentucky, but you don't want to go too low if he has a game that is not quite similar to his debut performance. But all in all, you just want to see how he performs. And here's the thing. Marshall has Brendan Knox. Let's not forget about that. So definitely want to get him going and see how they'll perform there. I do agree with you. I think Appalachian State will take the victory, but I expect this one to be close. I, you know, I, I expect good, big things from Conference USA teams. So uh, I would like to see Marshall. They certainly have enough talent. Tavante Beckett, Brendan Knox. Um, Xavier Gaines, you know, the nice to see the receivers and Brock Thompson and, and guys like that. So let's see what happens. But I do think App State will get the victory. Then over in San Antonio in the Alamo Dome, the Roadrunners host Stephen F. Austin at uh, 3 Eastern on ESPN3, uh, hoping for a big repeat performance from Frank Harris and Sincere McCormick here, uh, obviously against a lower quality opponent than they saw last uh, week. But uh, Stephen F. Austin has shown that they can kind of go neck and neck with uh G5 teams and and FBS teams in general before. Um, They certainly gave UTEP a run for their money in uh, their opener, but uh, I think UTSA are a very safe pick here, uh, especially if they can continue in the form that we've seen them be in so far this year. No doubt about it. This is the thing, you know, once again, I'm sorry for sounding like it's just rinse and repeat, but you'll probably hear me say this throughout this podcast and throughout the year because there's so many Conference USA teams are either a replacing a ton of players from last year or be coming into new situations with different head coaches, et cetera. But you want to see UTSA follow up a very good performance at Texas state with their home opener. Sure. The dome is going to be packed. I, I think a lot of the, um, our guy and Jared Kalmus would say that a lot of the Roadrunner fans are kind of rejuvenated and re-energized with this hire and especially their week one performance. So go out there, perform well at home and Frank Harris, stay healthy. But, uh, you know, for all of us, we'd love to see another entertaining breakout quarterback in this league. So please stay healthy. And sincere McCormick is just a stud. The conference USA freshman of the year last year looks to be picking up where he left off. So, uh, those will be the things, and all in all, I do expect UTSA to win. 
I mean, hey, in the age of COVID-19, if there's anything you want to do right now, it's rinsing and repeating for sure. So no worries on that one. <laughs> 3.30 Eastern on ESPN, the Georgia Southern Eagles hosting FAU here. Um, I think this is going to be an interesting contest in Statesboro. Uh, to open the year, we saw Georgia Southern uh, get a win against uh, Campbell 27-26. to 26. Um, So obviously... Campbell, not an FBS team, but it's certainly no no slouch if you're going to give a, a team like Georgia Southern a run for their money. Um, and obviously preparing for the triple option is uh, <laughs> easier said than done. Um, but I think this is going to be a really interesting concept, uh, contest for FAU with a new quarterback. Um, and obviously, you know, it, this is going to be a, a key moment for Willie Taggart's team as they look to start their season off with some positive momentum. All right. Finally, I'm not just going to rinse and repeat the same answers, right? For FAU, you know, season opener, there is a lot. (laughs) There are a lot more questions and answers about this team. And it's so funny because you would think, you know, when last season ended, all right, they're going to have Chris Robinson back. They're going to have Achilles Leroy back. Uh, Well, not quite. And and Malcolm Davidson, at least they have Malcolm Davidson back and running back and, and, you know, BJ Emmons and, and Larry McCammon in that stable. And I think that's the saving grace for FAU here. Also keep an eye for the greater Conference USA audience. They picked up a couple of grad transfers, a receiver, and TJ Chase, a former five-star recruit. He was an all-world recruit out of Plant City High School a few years back. Didn't really you know, pan out at Clemson due to injuries. And they also picked up Aaron Young from Duke, who was a um, – he started a lot of games from last year. Very solid pedestrian is not a not a positive a solid uh, a ACC receiver at Duke uh, he'll make the transition to being at FAU want to see how they're able to perform Michael Irvin too is there at tight end so he will be there replacing Harrison Bryant and John Rain who left to go to Northwestern so like I said a lot more questions and answers especially on defense where they are bringing in so many new players but yeah want to see how FAU performs and the just the debut of Willie Taggart what type of offense how will the offense look like you know it's going to be different than Lane Kiffin's you know coach Taggart is someone who uh, had run the Gulf Coast offense to success at USF is it going to be a hybrid of that that allows Nick Tronti to use his legs and maybe be that guy who can you know rush for seven eight hundred yards and throw for two thousand or are they going to look to throw the ball a little bit more we'll see I expect to see a ton of Malcolm Davidson I expect him to run for you know over a thousand yards this year. Um, I I think that FAU, quite frankly, should win this ball game. Wasn't wholly impressed with Georgia Southern's performance last week. But as you mentioned, that triple option is hard to prepare for. So I'm taking FAU, but um, we'll see what happens in week one. A lot to look for. I'll definitely have my eyes planted on that game on ESPN. Same here, my friend. And uh, with that, then we have MTSU hosting Troy in what could potentially be the uh, first of two contests between those two teams this year. Uh, Four o'clock Eastern on ESPN2 is where you can catch that. Uh, Troy favored by three and a half. Um, This is going to be, you know, kind of a moment of truth for uh, Ash O'Hara and that offense. Can they bounce back from what was, frankly, a really bad day in their season opener against Army uh, last week? So, or two weeks ago, rather. Um, So it's going to be interesting to see what they're able to put together there. We know Troy uh, can play a really good fast paced style of football. Um, So hopefully, you know, we'll see whether or not MTSU's defense led by Reed Blankenship can, uh, you know, compete with that. Um, But if they can't, this one could get ugly very quickly, just the way the uh, army game did, but for different reasons. 
Yeah, yeah. Troy is always a very good Sun Belt team. And quite frankly, I believe it was Kara Ritchie who uh, worked in Jonesboro, Arkansas for the sports radio station down there. I would recommend following her on Twitter if you're not following her already. She's a great uh, Sun Belt follow. But I believe she noted that the Sun Belt is doing really well against Conference USA in the past year and change. So uh, be interested to see how this matchup works out. And you mentioned as far as a moment of truth. Asher O'Hara, you know, we've kind of run this point to the ground as far as maybe the next step for him is really progressing as a passer and didn't have a bad year as a passer last year. Threw for over 2,500 yards and rushed for over 1,000. I believe the only other quarterback to do that was Jalen Hurts. But there's no other way to put it. They just looked outclassed, outmatched, outcoached, out everything against Army. And, you know, was that a byproduct of their opening week game being switched three times in a month? Or was that a product of the returning talent they have on the field? This will be a um, a good test of that. And the fact that, once again, they're getting an ESPN2 showcase, 4 o'clock, so a lot of the nation will get a chance to see Middle Tennessee State for the first time. Reed Blankenship, we know he can play. Get a chance to see Robert Jones there at tackle. Uh, I think the big thing, Joe, for me is going to be the running game. Jay McDonald, we, we, we didn't get a chance to talk about this too much heading into the year because we didn't know until – shortly before kickoff, that the grad transfers in Martel Petway, the former West Virginia running back, and Amir Rasul, the former Florida State running back, had opted out. So the running game is Jay McDonald and Shatan Mobley. They're going to have to get that going because if that's not going to be a factor, team's just going to key in on Asher O'Hara on those designed QB runs, and he just can't take those hits all year, and uh, that's going to be something that I'll keep an eye on. So we'll see. This may be the CUSA homer in me, but I am expecting a big rebound performance from the Blue Raiders, expecting them to win despite being down, despite being uh, underdogs at home, excuse me. And, uh, yeah, uh, we'll see what happens, but I'm expecting a rebound performance from Ash O'Hara and the Blue Raiders. Should be entertaining nonetheless. And then uh, to round out the well, to start rounding out the slate, rather, we have North Texas hosting SMU in a battle of the Texas schools at 6 Eastern on CBS Sports Network. Uh, the Mustangs favored by 14 in this one. Um, as with Middle Tennessee, you know, this is going to be an interesting test for North Texas's offense with the uh, quarterback questions that they have there. Um, you know, ultimately, I think if we can, uh, if they can rely on Oscar Attaway, the the, the way that they did before, I think they're going to have some good success as well. Um, but, you know, I think this is going to be a really good contest. I'm, I'm going to go ahead and pick North Texas for the upset, but they have to kind of figure out what they're doing at quarterback here. If you couldn't tell that Joe and I are still working our way into regular season form, I think both of us are a little bit exhausted. We saw like, man, this is we've done six games on the preview and thinking like, all right, we're we're tapping out of gas here, but we got to get ready for a full slate of CUSA games. To, uh, to preview. Yeah, as far as North Texas is concerned, I think you hit the nail on the head there as far as the quarterback situation. I don't think they can go back and forth, especially, and you know, you and I have talked about this. They're such similar quarterbacks. It's not like one is doing one thing and one is doing the other. The example I love to use is the old Florida example with Chris Leak and Tim Tebow. It's not like one is a passer and one is the, rus- the rusher. Both of them are very similar quarterbacks. So we'll see what happens there. I am inclined to pick SMU. I think that they're due for a rebound performance, especially how they looked against Texas State and their home opener and their season opener, excuse me. But I, I don't think it's going to be a 14-point game. This would not shock me if it's a three or three-point game or a one-score game. But I do think SMU will pull, a, pull ahead or pull away, excuse me, behind the arm of Shane Bouchelle. 
Michelle, of course, always seems to put on a show when he's on the field. So highly recommend catching that one if you can. Um, and then at 7.30 Eastern on ESPN2, we have Southern Miss and Louisiana Tech scheduled to play. Uh, now, if you remember last week, Louisiana Tech was uh, originally scheduled to play Baylor. Um, that game, of course, got postponed due to a high number of COVID-19 uh Test that came back positive for the Bulldogs. Uh, so as of now, nothing to indicate that that game, uh, you know, won't go ahead as scheduled here. Um, but a critical contest for both teams. Obviously, with Louisiana Tech, we haven't seen them take the field yet this year. So curious to see what they can do in a post, you know, Jamar Smith and Meek Robertson world. Um, and for Southern Miss, you know, we saw really a pretty disappointing performance from them to open the season uh, two weeks ago. Um, they're favored by five in this game. I would give them the benefit of the doubt here, just uh, mainly for the rack for the fact that excuse me, they've had more time to kind of put a plan together. They've had more uh, time on the field and, you know, more time to kind of figure out what they're doing. And of course, you know, Jack Abraham and the talent there. So hopefully he can, uh, you know, lead his team to a victory in this one, at least for the sake of that program, as they kind of figure out what's happening in a post Jay Hobson era. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is going to be a a really pivotal game for Southern Miss, and, and like you said, uh, it's going to be if this game is uh, is is played. It no no reason to expect it won't be, but we you know talked about obviously COVID concerns and things of that nature. I think for Southern Miss, what I'm really looking to see is defensively. We we know the the losses they had as far as Rasheem Booth and Jaquez Turner and things of that nature. Uh, there were a defense that was already looking to improve off of last year. How are they going to perform? Because quite frankly, they just were outclassed in their season opener against Desmond Trotter in South Alabama. So how are they going to perform against a Louisiana Tech offense that outside of the quarterback questions, they're really good. You know, Justin Henderson is a really good running back. They've got Adrian Hardy. They've got Griffin Bear, They've got C.J. Powell. They've got Malik Stanley. Uh, they've got all, plenty of talent at receiver. So we'll see what can happen there. But I think that's going to be the major thing. And uh, yeah, for Scotty Walden making his uh, FBS head coaching debut, uh, you and I talked about this last week. This is essentially a nine game audition for him. I don't see any reason why. And especially given the fact that Southern Miss Jay Hobson was the lowest paid head coach in, in Conference USA, making just under $500,000 a year. Not calling Southern Miss cheap. But I'm just saying that there's no reason to believe that they're going to go out and make a splashy hire, not like the, the Deion Sanders hire that was speculated by that publication we talked about last week. So this is essentially a nine-game audition for him to show what he can do with the program. And, uh, yeah, I mean, we'll see what happens. But I, I think this is going to send Southern Mr. Owen, too. I just think Tech has a much better football team right now. Certainly a fair point. Uh, to round out the slate now, we have UTEP hosting Abilene Christian at 9 o'clock Eastern on ESPN3 in the Sun Bowl there. Uh, we talked about you know UTEP ad nauseum uh, earlier in the show and, and last week as well. Um, this is going to be big for them in the terms of like, if they don't win this game, then, you know, there's much, much bigger problems happening for them. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and pick them just because like, I do think there is talent on this football team. I just don't know that it's, you know, uh, at the level where they can, you know, make serious noise within the conference, but I do think they're capable of beating Abilene Christian on Saturday. 
Before I get to UTEP really quickly, just uh, something that popped up on my phone uh, to finish up on Southern Miss. Uh, apparently, Brett Favre has said in an interview uh, in the Hattiesburg American that he would be interested in the Southern Miss job. But if not him, they should hire Deion Sanders. So uh, <laughs> uh, apparently, uh, yeah, they won't let go of the Deion Sanders train. All right. As for UTEP, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, they have to have a much better showing, uh, kind of what I talked about in the first half of this podcast. There's no reason to believe that Abilene Christian has out-recruited UTEP. No reason to believe that they have comparable talent. And maybe I'm just down on Abilene Christian. I apologize. But it's been three years of Dana Dimmel's recruiting. If they're at a point where, quite frankly, Abilene Christian and Louisiana Monroe are games that they are not competitive in, we got issues. And I'm just not I'm not trying to sound the alarm and you know be all doom and gloom about UTEP. But this is really where they're at. And I'm someone who, like I said, after week one, I'm optimistic about the young talent they have. I just think this next three, four week stretch, Joe, is really pivotal as far as the future of UTEP football. So I'm taking UTEP uh, with my fingers crossed and hoping that they're heading in the right direction. I can't agree with you more. They're certainly going to be an important Saturday afternoon for UTEP as well as their fans here. Uh, so thank you so much again for listening to the underdog podcast. It's uh, nothing but a pleasure to bring you guys uh COSA news every day or every week. Rather, um, if you want to get uh, G five football news every day, especially throughout the regular season here, uh, check out underdogdynasty.com and uh, you know, check out our friends on the uh, Sunbelt podcast too. If you're interested in learning more about what's going on in that conference right now, uh, um, and uh, with that, if you want to follow Eric and myself on Twitter, I'm at J-O-E-H-I-O underscore. Eric is at Eric C. Henry underscore. And uh, of course, the main UDD account at Underdog Dynasty. Check it out. Um, but uh, we'll, as, as the dogs start barking downstairs, we'll go ahead and wrap it up here. Happy football watching, everybody. Stay safe and healthy out there. 